Global financial markets run on credit, this vast network of loans known as bonds. The bond market is essentially just a big lending market. It's worth tens of trillions of dollars more than the stock market. Every day, traders all over the world at hedge funds, pension funds, and money managers are making simple bets. Is it a good idea to lend this money or not? Essentially, companies and governments and everyone, they need to borrow money. And that sort of keeps on rolling the whole time. So maybe you had a two-year loan, you need to renew that, uh, then you have to go back to the market. And the investor, the bond trader, actually is the one who lends the money, who buys the bonds. That's Ulf Erlinson. He's a former bond trader himself. For years, he worked with a Swedish pension fund making judgment calls on whether to loan money to this company or that government for 10, 20, or 30 years. You, know, you can have 10, 25 deals a day on your screens. And you need to make investment decisions. Which am I going to buy? What am I going to sell against it, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So it's a quite active type of trading environment. And there's a certain type of trader in this vast world of high-stakes global lending called a bond vigilante. A bond vigilante is someone who's shorting, so negatively investing in bonds in order to drive up interest rates on that bond until a place where that issuer almost goes bankrupt. There aren't that many of them out there, and they aren't particularly well-liked. It's a life of starvation and high risk to be a bond vigilante, so it's uh, not something you have as a you know, everyday go-to-job description, usually. Ulf is the founder and chief executive of a nonprofit called the Anthropocene Fixed Income Institute. He's not an active bond vigilante who makes trades. He calls out deals in corporate and government lending that could be a target for these contrarians. His expertise? Climate change. And we think there is a non-zero probability that you will see some uh, climate-focused bond vigilantes going forward who will short-sell, target particular bond issuers with big fossil exposures make their interest rates go up so much that these companies actually effectively become bankrupt. Ulf has a PhD in economics. He designed high-frequency trading platforms that can execute huge volumes of transactions in microseconds. And as a bond trader in the mid-2000s, he flirted with vigilantism. I think I've also, you know, over the years, gained a little bit of a reputation of being someone who's a little bit, uh, well, a troublemaker or a maverick when it comes to some of these things. That reputation started in 2015, when he was investing for a Swedish pension fund. He was trading what are known as green bonds— loans that are supposed to go to a company to build renewable energy or sustainability projects. And Ulf was asked to evaluate a green bond deal for a Swedish state-owned power company called Vattenfall. Should he buy the bonds? In other words, should he loan the company money? He dug into Vattenfall's assets. And then it turns out that this Swedish company, Vattenfall, uh, was actually quite big in terms of running lignite coal plants down in Germany. Lignite is the dirtiest and most carbon-intensive form of coal. In fact, as late as 2015, Vattenfall started up a new large lignite power plant in Germany. And just a couple of weeks after that, they went out to the bond market uh, where I was a participant. And they said, you know, we want to borrow, I think it was one and a half billion euros. And I started challenging the company because, uh, you know, I understood that their activities were quite carbon intensive. So so I started asking them essentially that, uh, where are you sort of ascribing the economic value to these lignite assets that you have in Germany, because I think they're problematic. Now, the company responded and said, we're not going to disclose that information. And that's where you're sitting as a bond trader. It's like, what? 
And I realized that this is something which they have grossly overvalued, most likely, on their balance sheet. Vattenfall's basic financial accounting didn't even consider the risk of those coal assets. This was, after all, the year of the Paris Climate Agreement. Mining and burning coal was getting much more expensive, and further regulatory pressure was coming. So Ulf went back to his trading desk, and instead of loaning the company money, he bet against it. I talked to one of the investment banks in London, put on a short position, and uh, sat down and watched the story unfold. Uh, After they issued that bond, they had to write down roughly one and a half billion euros on their lignite exposures in Germany. The bond price fell drastically. Ulf's trade made a lot of money for the Swedish pension fund. But he was working for a government investment firm taking on another government-owned company. And I got a very, very severe pushback on that, uh, almost to the degree where I felt my job was at risk. So it, it was my, my sort of trading desk picket line experience. But, you know, realization also that there are a lot of big interests working the other way when it comes to climate and fossil exposures. It's not all green and good, uh, even in, in a relatively green environment as in, as in Sweden. It was the first time Ulf clearly saw the climate disconnect in financial markets. While banks are busy talking up green bonds, sustainable investing, and net zero targets, there's a vast market of lending supporting the worst polluters. And Ulf made it his mission to stop them. This is A Matter of Degrees, stories for the climate curious. I'm Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. And I'm Dr. Leah Stokes. Since the Paris Climate Agreement was signed in 2015, banks and large investors have dumped $3.8 trillion into fossil fuels. It's a staggering, gut-wrenching number. And as we've shared in a previous episode, this is why writer and activist Bill McKibben has called money the oxygen that fuels the fire of global warming. We know that our planet's carbon budget is almost maxed out. If we look at the climate impacts that have been unfolding this summer, some might even say that we've already blown the budget. But while wildfires are burning around the world and getting worse every single year, it's like the world's bankers are blowing on those fires, making them even bigger. For this episode, we have a story about two people who are trying to cut off that supply of oxygen to global lenders and the insurance companies backing them. And it comes from our executive editor, Stephen Lacey. As you heard at the top of the show, we start with bond vigilantism. Stephen, how did you start paying attention to the bond markets? You mean aside from hearing that word bond vigilante and getting super excited? (laughs) It really began with that dollar figure you mentioned, $3.8 trillion. That's how much money has been committed over the last five years to companies that are offshore drilling, extracting tar sands, fracking gas, and burning coal. That number is just staggering because that's only in the last five years. Yeah, and that's happening while all these banks are coming out talking about their net zero targets and how they're going to stop financing certain kinds of fossil fuel projects. But what we really see is that there's a lot of money still going into the industry. Oil and gas companies are trying to build new pipelines all over North America. But there's one thing these companies need to keep building these destructive oil pipelines. Money. A lot of that money comes from banks. These are the very same banks that some of us use for our checking accounts and our mortgages. And who are the banks doing all this lending? Well, here's the problem. It's basically everybody. It's all names you've heard. 
J.P. Morgan, Citi, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, RBC, Barclays, Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank, the Bank of China, the State Bank of India. I could read dozens and dozens more. People are starting to question how their money is being used. But we still have the dirty dozen. These are banks that fund pipeline companies and projects that threaten human rights and the environment. Enough is enough. All of us all over the globe need to stand together, make our voices heard, and join the wave of resistance. And this activity is tracked in a yearly analysis called Banking on Climate Chaos. It's written by a collection of environmental groups, including Oil Change International, the Sierra Club, and Rainforest Action Network. And as I dug deeper into these numbers, something really stood out for me. Most of this $3.8 trillion isn't being directly used for a pipeline here or a fracking operation there, what we know as project finance. Some of it certainly is, but a lot of it is just general corporate lending to the companies who may be building or supporting that infrastructure. I think maybe it's easier when you describe it to talk about what capital markets do. And that is essentially, we lend money. And when you lend money to someone, you take a certain responsibility for the activities of what that person is using the money for. That's Ulf Erlinson again. A lot of that lending includes fixed income investments, otherwise known as bonds. Again, these are just long-term loans to governments or companies that guarantee a certain rate of return over 5, 10, 20, or 30 years. A bank like J.P. Morgan, which tops the list as the worst backer of fossil fuels, trades $140 billion worth of bonds every year for mutual funds and pension funds. Ulf has a really striking and slightly humorous way of differentiating fixed income investments, bond trading, from equities, the stock market that most of us know. So consider, for example... You have an organized crime syndicate, you know, mobsters of some kind, and they come to you and ask if you want to engage in their activities. If you are an equity investor, they would essentially say, you know, hey, you give us some money and you get a cut of whatever money we make. And that's pretty easy to sort of stand back and say, no, I don't want a share of that. Now, when you look at it from a fixed income perspective, the syndicate will come to you and they will ask you, can you lend us some money? It might not be for our criminal activities. It might actually be for our house or for our bulletproof cars or something like that. But um, will you lend it to us? And I think that distinction there is quite much harder to say, OK, I'm going to lend them the money for that particular project. Uh, whereas it's pretty clear-cut when you're the equity investors that you're going to be a participant in that type of activity. We certainly like to talk organized crime on this show. Last season, we heard the FBI compare a utility bribery scandal to mob racketeering, and now Ulf is comparing bonds for dirty energy companies to funneling money into a crime syndicate. You know, this theme on our show might have something to do with why I very committedly binged succession during the pandemic lockdown days. And my takeaway from that show and just good journalism, of course, is that it's often a very fine line between corporate shenanigans and actual mobsters. Well, I'm glad I could continue pushing the analogy here. And I think you could actually push it a little bit further because in this scenario, bond trading is a little bit more like laundering money. When companies buy and sell stocks, it's pretty easy to track that transaction in organized markets. Bond trading is still largely over the counter. 
That just means a trader will make a phone call to execute a trade. This debt often trades hands quietly, and there's no central place to compile information on who owns the bond. And this bond market, it is vast. Can you quantify the investments in fossil fuels that the bond market is supporting? How big is it? So let's start just by saying roughly how big the bond market is. So we talk about fixed income markets in general to be something around you know, between 100 and 120 trillion US dollars. And that's in perspective or comparison with equity markets, which are around you know, 65 to 80 billion, uh, trillion uh, US dollars. So you have you know, fixed income markets actually being bigger than equity markets, which is interesting to begin with. Then you have this dimension of there's so much in terms of uh, the fossil industry, which is funding through the fixed income market rather than the equity market. So we tend to say that, you know, among the 100 biggest historical emitters of carbon dioxide, only roughly 30 are accessible through the equity link of the financial market. But almost all of them are, are connected in some sense to the bond market. So the bond market is financing a lot more stuff out there than the equity market. So what I'm hearing, Stephen, is that the bond market is supporting everything. Yeah, basically. I mean, it supports every large entity that needs to borrow money. Sometimes these loans are tied to a specific underlying asset. Maybe it's an actual specific project. It's a highway. It's a water treatment facility. It's an energy project, but often it's just for general operations. Buying a bond is like saying, I think this corporation or this government is creditworthy enough to get my money. And the level of risk determines the interest rates earned by the investor, whoever owns that bond. Okay, so you have this market worth more than $100 trillion that supports all the top emitters of carbon pollution, and it's difficult to track. I have to say, going back to our earlier fire-blowing analogy, this seems a little bit more like chucking tanks of oxygen into a house already on fire, maybe hosing <laughs> it down with kerosene. <laughs> so the question, obviously, is how do we stop it? It seems pretty obvious, Catherine. We got a call in the vigilantes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Leah, I wish I could tell you there's some like hollowed out volcano somewhere. And inside there's this group of environmentally minded quants with a room full of computers ready to jump into an electric car to come save the day. But there is not. <sighs> there are people like Ulf there in Sweden who are starting to scrutinize these deals and scrutinize them pretty heavily, trying to make it harder for big polluters to raise the debt they need to fuel these operations. Let me give you a specific example. The Carmichael mine is projected to generate 10 million tonnes of coal each year to be shipped to India. At capacity, it could mine 27 million tonnes annually, making it the country's largest thermal coal project. And with today's decision, building can now begin. The Carmichael Mine is a controversial open pit operation in northeastern Australia. It's being developed by a large Indian corporation called Adani Enterprises. It could send 10 million tons of coal to India every year, potentially 30 million tons of coal. And it would send those shipments straight over the Great Barrier Reef. The company claims it will create 1,500 direct jobs during construction, with another 6,500 indirect jobs. But the employment figures are strongly contested by the mine's opponents. 
This just goes to show that the politicians have completely sold out to their coal mining donors and they have betrayed Queenslanders with this decision today. It's just such a catastrophically bad idea to be making this kind of investment in coal in the face of all of the intense climate impacts that have been hitting Australia, much less the rest of the world. And it honestly really feels like flipping a bird to the Great Barrier Reef, which is already getting fried in our more acidic, hotter oceans. I mean, what the hell are they thinking? Yeah, I just don't understand how the Australian government can say, oh, the Great Barrier Reef is a national treasure. You know, it's like a wonder of the world, so important to protect it, and then build a coal mine, approve a coal mine right next door. And at every step, environmental groups and indigenous groups have tried to stop it. But the Australian government pushed it forward anyway, giving it final approval in 2019. So depressing. So is this a loss, Stephen? Do we got to put it up on the board? Is this a done deal? Did we lose? Not yet, because Adani still needs loans to finish the project. And in enters the bond market. And that brings us back to Ulf, the bond guy, and his organization, Anthropocene Fixed Income Institute. In November, we had a big case uh, around something called State Bank of India, which was about to give you know, more than half a billion US dollars in a loan to the Don Enterprises, who are then going to use that to, to finish uh, the Carmichael coal mine in Australia. This is where Ulf's deep knowledge of the bond market exposed a hidden web of lending that can lead to massive new fossil fuel projects and be disguised as green. In 2017, a group of investors created this multi-billion dollar fund intended to invest in green bonds. These bonds would, in theory, go to projects with a positive environmental benefit. And the fund invested in the Bank of India with that promise. Fast forward to 2019. The Carmichael mine gets final environmental approval. Immediately, the Adani Group starts issuing bonds. And the State Bank of India steps in to offer a $670 million loan to finance Adani's Australian mining operations. Oh, just $670 million, (laughs) presumably with the capital the State Bank of India had raised from its green bond investors. I'm really guessing here, uh, coal was not the intended beneficiary. Nope, these do not sound like green bonds to me. And they didn't sound like that to Ulf either. And it just doesn't compute anymore with investors in that green bond or in general bond investors that, you know, an exposure of bank that they're lending to uses their money to own lend to a big new coal mine bill. So in that case, we managed to rally uh, a couple of sort of intermediate-sized asset managers and asset owners first, but then it became uh, a a pretty big pool of, you know, the biggest asset managers in the world. BlackRock piled in and started uh, talking to State Bank of India, Norges Bank Investment Management, which is the world's largest sovereign wealth fund, started talking to State Bank of India. And eventually the bank said, no, we're not uh, going to do the loan, at least not right now. Because, you know, there's just too much pushback from fund investors. I think that's really, really cool and you know, makes, makes it a positive statement that things can happen. HSBC, Barclays, Credit Suisse, JP Morgan, they all vowed not to support the project. 
And even though ground was just broken on the mine, Adani is still struggling to find financing to build it out further. And the scale of planned operations are way smaller compared to a couple years ago. It hasn't been shut finally, uh, but we hope uh, eventually that they will de- you know, make the decision that it's not economically sane to actually continue with that, with that project. It's pretty clear to me that bond markets, these loans that fuel the global economy, they are an enormous, often hidden problem for the climate. And in this case, we managed to save about half a billion dollars from going to this terrible Adani coal mine. And that's great. But that's just a sliver of the $3.8 trillion that we've been talking about that's been committed to fossil fuels over the last five years. I agree the sliver feels really small, which is weird to say about half a billion dollars. (laughs) But this story also seems to point to an opening, which I'm guessing is what gets Ulf up in the morning. Because it sounds like a relatively small number of bond investors could put up a fight. And I'm horrified by the picture you're laying out in this episode, Stephen. But that leverage point does sound really promising. Do you think that shaming investors could actually move the needle? Yes, I think it could. This goes back to the concept of bond vigilantism, which in other markets, in technology sectors, for example, a small number of people can move the stock price or move the way money flows into particular companies or industries. And Ulf is trying to do that in the climate space. He's one of the few people picking fights with actual traders and investment funds when it comes to carbon and our carbon budget. So it's still pretty early to tell how fast investors are catching up. But look, this shaming is what fueled the divestment movement. It's worked. It's one of the reasons banks, tech firms, and every other big company is tripping over themselves to talk about sustainable investing. It's one of the reasons fossil fuel companies are scared they're not going to find young talent to build their companies with. And it's starting to work in another area, insurance. Insurance may seem like a a niche topic for climate activists, but it is actually an invisible linchpin of the fossil fuel economy. Ilana Selectiona is an energy finance campaigner with the Rainforest Action Network. She runs the organization's efforts to pressure the insurance industry. She goes by Selectiona. The divestment movement brought Selectiona into climate campaigning. And as she got deeper into how and why trillions of dollars are flowing to fossil fuel companies, it was clear that insurers are the enablers. In the same way that you you can't drive a car or a house without insurance, fossil fuel companies can't build new coal mines or tar sands pipelines without adequate insurance. So it's this lever that I never thought about before, but really did kind of underpin all fossil fuel expansion. Insurance companies operate in this really weird space when it comes to climate change. They're simultaneously alarmed by the problem and deeply entrenched in making it worse. They have the best data in the world on risk, and they've known since the 70s that climate change is accelerating sea level rise, extreme precipitation, and extreme heat. And they're paying more. In fact, 2020 was one of the costliest years on record for the insurance industry, with hurricanes, floods, and wildfires pushing losses over $76 billion in the U.S. alone. And they've adjusted how they price that risk, making policies very expensive in places. Many insurers are pulling out of coastal areas entirely or completely abandoning places like Northern California that are being engulfed in fire earlier and earlier every year. But at the same time, those same insurers will underwrite policies to protect pipelines, offshore oil rigs, fracking rigs, the infrastructure they know is causing climate change. And instead of protecting communities, 
They are withdrawing from those regions, and then they're turning around and investing billions of dollars in fossil fuels and ensuring fossil fuel expansion. Whoa, Stephen, this is the kind of stuff you cannot make up. No, and it gets worse. Because the way that insurance companies make money are inextricably linked to the bond markets that we were just talking about. So (laughs) if an insurance company needs to make money to back their policy, they invest it in stocks and bonds. And globally, insurers have tens of trillions of dollars under management. It's estimated that U.S. insurers own $450 billion in equity and debt in fossil fuel companies in their portfolios. And we know now how the bond market is propping up that old dirty energy. So, Stephen, you're not bringing us two different stories about the bond market and the insurance industry. You're actually bringing us a single story. That's exactly right. These two industries cannot work without each other. And fossil fuels at the scale that we know them would not be operating without the bond markets and without insurers backing the companies in those bond markets. So there's this scorecard from the Insure Our Future campaign. This is the campaign that Selectiona works on. And the worst offenders are largely American companies. Berkshire Hathaway, Travelers, AIG, Liberty Mutual, MetLife. And we see the same thing in the bond markets, too. A lot of the worst offenders are American companies. Almost all European and Australian insurers will no longer provide coverage for new coal projects which has made it harder and costlier to secure the insurance that coal projects need to operate. However, U.S. insurance companies like far behind their global peers. Six U.S. insurers have adopted policies on coal, but they are riddled with loopholes. And there are major coal insurers in the U.S., like AIG, Berkshire Hathaway, that have yet to adopt any sort of restrictions on coal. But before you get too low... I will tell you, there's a shift happening here, too. In the last couple of years, climate campaigners have devoted a lot more resources to naming and shaming insurers. They're protesting at offices, conferences, project sites. They're blasting execs with phone calls. They're publishing scorecards like the one I just mentioned. And some of the top firms have responded. Insurers and reinsurers like Swiss Re, Hanover Re, Munich Re, Allianz, AXA, they've all vowed to stop backing coal and tar sands operations. This is having a real impact on the ground for companies like Adani, which is facing the same pressure from insurers as it is from bond investors. Adani announced that it was self-financing the mine because so many global banks had ruled out supporting the project and it couldn't get the credit that it needed to build it. But insurance remained a a critical missing piece for the mine to move forward. It could not self-insure the project. So at around the same time that Ulf was rallying bond investors, Selectiona was waging a campaign with more than 70 organizations to pressure insurers to stop backing the Carmichael mine. And this combination of financial pressure and public backlash, it started working. According to a tracker that the organization Market Forces keeps, 40 insurance companies and insurance brokers have publicly ruled out insuring the Adani mine. And we are seeing the impacts of that play out on the ground. Adani's main construction contractor, 
on the project, which is a company called BMD, recently admitted that it has been unable to find public liability, environmental protection, and director and officer's insurance specifically for its construction of the Adani mine. There are various legal restrictions in place and stipulations set by banks around having adequate insurance. And so BMD's statement, this statement from the contractor, suggests that when its existing insurance policies expire, Adani will be uninsured and may not be able to keep digging in the ground for this mine. This feels like an important opening because if a bunch of insurers, if 40 insurers are saying, we're not going to back this project, all of a sudden campaigners like yourself can come out and say, well, you're saying you're not going to back that project for climate reasons, environmental reasons. What about all these other projects that you're backing? Does this give you leverage as you start to push the entire industry further? Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it certainly does. And I, I should say, you know, although they're coming out with these statements, they're making the links to the climate events that are happening, no global insurer has adopted policies at the scale of the crisis and that align with the Paris Agreement's goal of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Our key demand for the global insurance industry right now is to stop insuring all new fossil fuel expansion projects. The climate cannot afford a single new coal mine or pipeline or fracking rig. And yet, you know, all of these companies are continuing to insure new oil and gas infrastructure. So this is a clear example where you can push these leverage points. But no insurers or reinsurers, these are the companies that provide insurance to insurance companies, have actually vowed to stop backing all new fossil fuel infrastructure. But coal is definitely taking a hit. Premiums have skyrocketed, and there are only a handful of companies willing to cover the industry. Since the Insure Our Future campaign started, at least 26 companies have ended or limited their coverage of coal projects or companies, according to Selectiona. There's even a net zero insurance alliance that just emerged. It's these top insurers who are saying, we're going to transition our underwriting to support net zero emissions by 2050. Now, we have to treat these targets very skeptically, of course. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to say we're going to stop insuring fossil fuel companies and their projects tomorrow or in 2025, it's quite another to say, yeah, maybe in 2050, we'll have stopped some stuff, maybe. What's happening in 2030? What's happening in 2040? You know, that's a long ways off. Professor Stokes is on the trail of these BS targets. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it's, it's really true, right? The question is, what is the meaning of net, quote unquote, And as we covered in our episode on cleaning up the carbon mess in season one, a lot of these targets are very heavily reliant on offsets that are far from rock solid and often are a way to skirt actual genuine emissions reductions that we need, not in 2050, we need them now. Yeah, and it also means these insurance companies can hold bonds that might mature in 2040 or 2045 that are tied to fossil fuel assets, 
And in theory, with that five-year window, they could have a net zero portfolio, but be supporting bonds for fossil fuel companies over the decades to come. The same is true for underwriting a piece of fossil fuel infrastructure that maybe goes into retirement before 2050. This has real-world consequences, and we know it needs to stop now. So these net zero targets are an important recognition that the industry is trying to switch, but at this point, it's still more PR than an actual halting of the activity. But it does sound like these pressure campaigns are playing a really strategic role, that they've found an opening where companies are susceptible to their pressure. Absolutely. And I talked about that with Selectiona. They care about growing their customer base. They're actively trying to recruit the next generation of employees, as well as keep current employees at the company The insurance industry in particular has a massive workforce shortage. And so they are trying to court young people to come work in the industry. And we know, of course, that young people are the most concerned about climate change. So core to our theory of change is making our demands heard loud and clear and building the reputational risks for continuing business as usual for the company. If you could judge where we are on the spectrum of change in the insurance industry, where do you think we are? Have we reached an inflection point where change will accelerate further? I think we have a ways to go for the U.S. insurance industry to reach that inflection point. I think globally we are getting there. Uh, We're seeing European insurers in, in a bit of a race to the top, you know, who can come out with the best policy and they're revising them every year. They're still far from where we need to be. But the evidence that we've seen with how the coal industry is struggling to get insurance coverage is really encouraging. These are not just policies on paper that do not translate. They are actually having tangible effects on the ability of companies to secure coverage for new projects and existing projects and accelerating that phase out of the coal industry. And now we just need to do that for oil and gas much faster than the rate that we currently are going. So we have a couple powerful examples here. The insurance and financing problems for the Carmichael mine in Australia, Vattenfall's poor bond issuance after Ulf called out its coal holdings, and there are plenty of others. Enbridge, for example, has been under scrutiny for issuing green bonds that would supposedly go toward clean energy. But this is a company that is building pipelines like Line 3 and refining infrastructure with the goal of doubling Canadian tar sands production. California's state pension fund, called CalSTRS, is also heavily invested in a private equity fund that supports one of the biggest methane emitters in the Permian Basin. Ulf exposed that one as well. And it's also gaining traction in the world of politics. In 2020, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, this major federal regulator, said $4 trillion in global wealth is currently at risk from fossil fuel assets losing their value. Increasingly, Ulf believes that investors of all kinds are more clearly focused on the problem. When someone doesn't get a loan, and this is the, 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 the essence of what's going on here, it's like if a coal mine company, for example, can't borrow from the bond market at 5%, and they go out and they have to pay some investors 6% instead, 
in, in terms of interest rates on their bond in order to get that financing. That means that that company is fundamentally economically worse off. Their basic business model is less effective. And that means that other investors might reevaluate the company saying, hey, these guys, they have to pay 6% to borrow money. Um, we're actually going to sell our bonds because we think there's a much higher risk that this company will go bust. And this can happen very quickly when once you get to those type of points. And that's an extreme example. But I think in general, what we're starting to see, and this is the sort of the hot potato that, you know, investors are sort of trying to get out of some of these fossil assets because they, you know, they see less and less of, you know, a strong economic upside on it. There is a bigger and smarter movement to sort of criticize uh, pension funds, etc., when they're lending or financing in other forms uh, controversial fossil assets. What motivates you? Is it the environment or is it just pure risk calculation, financial risk calculation? This has become so intertwined with what I am and what I do, so it's hard to you know, entirely read that out. I'm sort of a, a small-time boy where bragging about things, uh, being hypocritical about things, about things was you know, perceived as very bad. And I see a lot of that going on. I think, you know, what I saw back in the Vattenfall case back in 2015, which, re- which really lit the flame inside of me, was such a big hypocrisy and, and sort of an arrogance of a dimension which I hadn't really uh, perceived before. And that you know, made me really, really interested in this. I have to combine it, though, with a certain sense, you know, I'm an ex-portfolio manager you know, I like good trades and I think this is a great trading opportunity. You get on the right side of this. You don't have to think that much about uh, the moral dimensions. I just think you're going to make much more money by getting on the green train rather than trying to uh, keep your white knuckles uh, attached to, to the fossil assets. You know, as I'm reflecting on this great story that you've brought us today, Stephen, I'm thinking about how we can take this work from individuals like these bond vigilantes and climate insurance campaigners and make it real in the regulatory world, bring it into government. It's one thing for individuals to call out banks, and that's really powerful. But it's another thing to get rules on the books to stop their behavior. How do the people making these rules and regulations around financial markets, how do they fit in? Yeah, and I know this has become a major focus for President Biden's financial team. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said this spring she plans to use the Financial Stability Oversight Council, an organization with huge powers, to enforce climate risk disclosure. So tell us more, Stephen. Yes, so this is one of the hottest stories in this world right now, climate financial risk. Everyone has been talking about climate risk disclosure. Basically, it's just forcing banks, hedge funds, anybody managing large amounts of money to disclose their fossil fuel assets and what level of risk there might be over 10, 20, 30 years. So it's just a way for us to identify the problem. But you can identify the problem and not do something about it. So it's only a start. I've heard one expert describe it as a bridge. And if that bridge doesn't get us to regulatory action, it's a bridge to nowhere. So right now, we're waiting on a major set of recommendations from Secretary Yellen that may lay out rules that could make disclosure powerful. It could be something like 
credit guidance from the feds. This would tell investors to avoid certain fossil fuel investments because of the destabilizing effects on financial markets. And we could use Dodd-Frank, which is this sweeping reform bill passed in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, to actually curtail certain classes of fossil fuel lending. Another idea could be to require banks to hold more capital on their books if they want to back fossil fuel projects or companies. And of course, banks don't like that because they want their money out in the market making more money for them. So those are a few kinds of policies that advocacy groups want to see, and we're really not sure which ones are going to be taken seriously or will come out in Janet Yellen's report. But what is clear is the conversation has shifted from just disclose the risk to do something about that risk, and it's very possible we get some serious policy recommendations in place. Well, there's no time like the present with $3.8 trillion having been committed to dangerous energy in the last five years. And at the end of this conversation, I still feel really overwhelmed by that number, but I'm also feeling like there are real ideas, strategies, regulatory tools for how we can cut that number way, way down going forward. Yeah, I feel overwhelmed by this problem all the time. And when I started looking into this topic, I felt like I was swimming in this vast ocean of the financial system. But what the divestment movement, this small but growing group of alarmed financial experts, climate campaigners have proven is that people are legitimately starting to make an impact, even in a global economy this big. And there are groups that you can join to start pushing on these pressure points. There's the Stop the Money Pipeline, Ensure Our Future, Do the Math. There are efforts that you can get involved with. And I'm thinking if any of our listeners out there know a little something about corporate lending, have a pretty high risk appetite, could maybe get their hands on a Bloomberg terminal, we could grow some more bond vigilantes. <laughs> I know a guy in Sweden you could talk to. <laughs> a Matter of Degrees is co-hosted by me, Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. And me, Dr. Leah Stokes. We are a production of Postscript Media, podcasts for a changing planet. Jamie Kaiser, Dalvin Abuaji, and Daniel Waldorf produced the show. Sean Marquand edited, mixed, and composed our theme song. Additional music came from Blue Dot Sessions. The show art was designed by Carl Spurzum. Our website was designed by Caroline Hadalak-Sono. Fact-checking by Emma Swanson. Thanks to our funders and supporters who make this show possible. Sunrise Project, Northlight Foundation, McKnight Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, The 11th Hour Project, and UC Santa Barbara. If y'all are digging the show, please hop on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating or leave a review. And come back soon because we're going to keep telling more stories for the climate curious. I feel like that. I'm sorry. No, that volcano must be real. It just seems so realistic, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the volcano that Jeff Bezos sends his rocket out of. <laughs>